Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have uh, William Yuri here with me from Colorado. Welcome to my podcast, William. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Esther. Thank you. And I'm really grateful that our paths have crossed. Thanks to our joint friends, both Simon Sinek and Bob Chapman. That's wonderful. Really wonderful. Yeah, you're, you're, you're in fine company. Exactly. Just as a short intro, uh, William Yuri's passion is, is helping people, organizations and societies get to seemingly impossible yeses, agreements that work for everyone. Uh, he's trained as a social anthropologist. He has worked as a mediator and negotiation advisor in many of the world's toughest conflicts from the Cold War to the Middle East. And he is co-author of uh, Getting to Yes, a 15 million copy bestseller translated into over 35 languages, and the author most recently of the award-winning Getting to Yes with Yourself. And he's co-founder of Harvest Program on Negotiation, where he currently directs the Global Negotiation Initiative. And William is also co-founder of the Climate Parliament, a forum for parliamentarians and civil society to accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. You've really been on a quest for the past four decades or so, a quest about peace. So where are you on that journey and, and what is really so far your secret actually to peace? Uh, that's a good question, Vesna. Yeah, I feel like I'm at a point where Actually, I was walking with my friend, Jim Collins, uh, who asked me this question uh, a little while ago on a hike here in Colorado. And he said, Can you, do you think you'd be able to sum up everything that you've learned about negotiation in uh, one sentence? <laughs> and he said, well, Darwin could, because, and he gave me a sentence from The Origin of Species that went like, vary and multiply, let the weak perish and the strong survive. And I've been thinking about that question ever since. And the question is, how to pass on everything that I've learned from so many wise people and also from a lot of, of experience in the world of business, in the world of politics, of how do we deal with our differences? How do we deal with our hardest differences? How do we reach agreements even when it seems impossible? And so that's, that's what I've been working on, is trying to answer Jim Collins's question and pass it on to the world for, so that we can address the real challenges that we face to, in today's world, which are unprecedented. And we're really at a fork in the road. Do we go down this path or do we go down that path? We can either go down the path to a lot of losses for everyone, including the world of business, or we can go into a much better world. And how do we make that jump to the right path? And, and, and I see your, your important work like, like bringing light, like some kind of, a, I don't know, healer of conflict or something, where you are like walking right into some kind of, um, typically some kind of collective wound or so. Many people can, can think about this as a scary place, but also a hopeful one, right? Because you are like going right into the to the heart of things. It's true. It's true. That's what I've found in my life is uh, I'm a wandering anthropologist and I wander around the world, including to your, you know, native country and, you know, the former Yugoslavia and, or, you know, the Cold War or 
various parts of Africa or Asia, really all parts of the world, Latin America, into trying to test out, if you use the world as a kind of laboratory, what really works? Can we really get to yes when, you know, union and management are battling, when there are boardroom battles, or when there are civil wars and ethnic conflicts? How do we deal with our differences? And the thing is, all these differences, they're made by us, and so they can be healed by us. And you're right when you say collective wound. So much of the world today, we are, you know, underneath it all, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. Individual trauma, of course, but most, but a lot of collective trauma. I remember I, I grew up in Europe. Uh, I spent half my childhood in Europe, in Switzerland, and but I traveled around Europe. I was in I, as a boy. I was in Yugoslavia. You know, uh, I spent a summer in Dubrovnik and and Pula and all these places. This was back in the '60s. Europe was still recovering from the traumas of World War One and World War Two. And there was still a kind of expectation that there would be a World War III. And in fact, you know, we're because you know, we, we used to ski a lot, of course, in Switzerland. And the place where you kept the skis was a nuclear bomb shelter. Every chalet, every house in Switzerland had to have a nuclear bomb shelter. So it was a, a vivid reminder that, you know, the world could suddenly shift like this. And for what? No one won World War I. And, you know, even in World War II, where there were victors. You know, the, the only solution was to bring the vanquished countries together. That was the only that was the only way to to work, and that was the, the origin of the European Community, as you know. And so, to me, that that points the way. We either are going to go down the path of mutual destruction of some kind, or we're going to find a way to live together. And business has a vital role to play in us learning to live together. I saw that in, in South Africa. I was there during the time of apartheid doing some work. And, and I watched as the transformation, which was seemed impossible to everyone at that time, took place in South Africa. Some of the lead players were the business community, which stood up and said, this makes no sense, you know, for the broader society and for the economy, in which, you know, gives everyone the jobs. And so the business the business community played the role of what I call a third side. The third side to me of any conflict is the side that stands for the whole, it's that remembers that we've got a whole here. And right now, whether we face climate or whether we face um, you know, artificial intelligence or wars or US-China you know, tensions, the business has a, a vital role to play in bringing the parties together and just pointing out, hey, think, think of the future. Think of what's going to make all boats rise here. How do we take care of everyone? How can we make peace cool? Peace is a process, not an outcome. It's a process. It's basically, we have a choice with our conflicts in whether they're conflicts within our organizations, between our organizations, within our societies, between our societies. We're not going to be able to resolve every conflict, nor should we. It's not about ending conflict. It's about, because conflict is what makes life. I mean, you know, life is what makes conflict. Even in the business world, you know, it's all this conflict and competition. The question that we face is, how do we handle that conflict? Do we handle it in constructive ways through cooperation, through collaboration, through dialogue, 
through constructive competition or do we handle it destructively, you know, with lawsuits and boycotts and violence and war and we, you know, and we make life unhappy for everybody. And to me, what peace means is the transformation of conflict to find solutions that work for everyone. That's a perfect definition. Thank you for that. And what would you um, like to share with the uh, leaders who are listening now? Like, what can they learn in terms of like good practices that you would like to highlight around peace and around how you kind of negotiate for important things? The simplest piece of advice is the importance of something that's really simple. It's the importance of listening. <laughs> you know that that so much in our lives, you know, negotiation or deals or disputes, whatever, is about talking. We think it's about talking, negotiation is about talking, but actually negotiation is much more about listening than it's about talking. And if you observe the behavior of successful negotiators, you find that they listen far more than they talk. You know, there's an old saying that we're given two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? And, but it's, it's the kind of listening that we do that's key. Because usually when we listen, you know, we're never taught really to listen. You take classes and everything, mathematics and English and French and foreign languages and geography. But we're never taught what may be the most important skill, which is the ability to listen to another human being or to a colleague or to a client or whatever it is. But listening means leaving for a moment your frame of reference, your point of view and adopting their frame of reference. In other words, putting yourself in their shoes. Because after all, in negotiation, and by negotiation I mean every day we're constantly involved in negotiating with everyone, trying to get to yes or trying to influence. I mean, negotiation is about influence. Influence, you're trying to often change someone's mind. How can you possibly change someone's mind unless you know where their mind is, right? We have to start from there. And To me, that's the departure. You have to meet people where they are. And so for me, listening is that. It's about empathy, but it's also about respect because when you listen to someone, you respect them. You know, it comes from Latin, respect, to look, to see again, to see a human being there. And it's about honoring their basic dignity in that sense. And listening may also be the key to building trust. You know, there's so much distrust now in our societies. Everyone distrusts everything, including business and whatever. We have to learn to build trust. And trust begins by listening, because by listening to someone, you show that you care, right? You see them, you hear them, you care. And that's the beginning of trust building. And in all of my You know, I, I get involved in all these complex negotiations, whether it's uh, civil wars or boardroom battles, for that matter. And what I find is everyone is shouting at each other, talking to each other, but there's very little listening going on. But listening turns out to be the key. It may be the, you know, what I'd like to say is the cheapest concession you can make in a negotiation. The concession that costs you the least, but means the most to the other, is to simply listen to them. So that to me is, uh, is something I find, in order to be, you know, one of the questions you might ask is, well, why don't we listen more? And I think what I've learned is that in order to listen well to the other, 
We have to do something before that, which is hard. We have to learn to listen to ourselves. Because the truth is, is what the reason we can't listen to others is there's so much going on in our minds, you know, so many thoughts and emotions and so on. By listening to ourselves, we prepare ourselves to listen for others. And I'd say that is probably, if I might just add here, one, one last thing here, Vesna, which is that maybe the single biggest lesson I've learned since, you know, working on getting to yes so many years ago is that the single biggest obstacle to us getting what we want in life is not what we think it is. It's not that difficult person on the other side of the table, the difficult colleague, boss, board of member, union chief, uh, client, whatever. The most difficult person that we deal with in life is right here. It's the person you look at in the mirror every single morning. It's ourselves. And if we're going to learn to get to yes with others when it's hard, we have to learn to get to yes with ourselves first. We have to listen to ourselves in order to be able to listen to others. There's three kinds of work, I think, that we're being invited to do simultaneously here. One is the work with others, you know, trying to get to yes with others, trying to reach agreement with others, which is where we put most of our focus. But we're realizing that in order to do that, we have to do that work, as you're saying, in touch with ourselves. We have to do that work with ourselves. And then there's a third work, which I think we often leave out, which is, and particularly in the world of business, but in every world, which is we need to get in touch with the larger whole, you know, whether it's the surrounding community, the society, the workplace, you know, right now, what's, what's climate change? What's all those problems is because we left out the planet. We left out the environment. We left out nature out of the equation. And then we're paying a price right now. And unless we learn to look not just for a win for ourselves, or even a win-win with the other, but a third win, which is a win for the society and for nature and for the planet. If we don't have that in mind at all times, it's going to be very difficult for us to get out of this mess. Mm. It feels somehow that we are sleepwalking through this climate crisis. Um, I mean, we have means to fix this if we agree and if we commit, all of us. But why don't we? Sleepwalking is the right word. I have a friend, she's from Denmark. Her name is Hanna. And she was telling me she was in Sweden, in Stockholm in 1972 at the first Stockholm Conference on the Environment. And even there, they were talking about climate change. That was 50 years ago. And we've been sleepwalking and we're slowly beginning to wake up. Now the question is, why are we sleepwalking? Because... It's convenient <laughs> because it's like we didn't want to pay attention to it because it's like it's, you know, it's, it's often because it, it was slow for long, many years, it was slow and insidious and scientists were telling us about it. But also somehow it always felt like some, it's always someone else's job. You know, someone else, uh, the government will take care of that or, or someone else will take care of that. And this is what I think we need to learn in the world of business or for any citizen is it's our job. You know, we're all collectively responsible for the climate crisis. It's not some bad corporations or bad this or bad. It's all of us. We are collectively, we collectively have co-created this phenomenon and collectively we can move for the better. 
And this is why that third line of work, which is the collective work, it's the inner work, the relational work, and the collective work that we need to focus on. That's why we've been sleepwalking. We've, we kind of took all of our problems and we said, oh, the collective will take care of it. We, we privatized the profits and we socialized the problems. It goes back into the commons and that no longer works. What works is we need to take responsibility. And responsibility doesn't necessarily mean the blame. Responsibility means responsibility, the ability to respond intelligently to the crisis that we face now. We have to, as my friend Jim Collins likes to say, we have to face the brutal facts and then respond intelligently. Maybe this is a big question to ask, but, you know, do you have like... Um a vision of like, the future you wish to see, let's say just in five or 10 years from now, how would you describe that future? If I had to describe the future in three words, it would be dignity for all. In other words, that world needs to be inclusive. What we have learned so painfully now is you cannot leave out groups of people. You, just like in, in business, if you leave out, oh, I'm going to build this plant, this factory, but I'll leave out the community, you find out the community is up in arms and then there's boycotts and there's lawsuits and you can't build the plant. We can't leave out anyone anymore. My first job as a mediator was in a coal mine in Kentucky where there was a lot of strikes going on and uh, wildcat strikes, bomb threats. It was, it was just, you know, management union wouldn't even sit down together. And we worked out an agreement, and it was great. It was a great agreement. Management union liked it. And there was one detail was they had to have a vote of the miners, and the miners had a unanimous vote rejecting the agreement because they felt left out. And that's to me, has been a big lesson as we leave out. So to me, the future is an inclusive future in which there's dignity for all. With COVID right now, we're finding, look, with Omicron, <laughs> you know, we let we left we, we we were quick to vaccinate everyone in our in our rich countries. We left out the poor countries, and guess what? You can't leave them out because otherwise it comes back and threatens you. And I think that's true. We have to have a future where everyone is included. That needs to be the vision of the future. And the only way we can do that, because you say, well, how are we going to take care of everyone? Well, I think business is going to be a big giant actor in that. There is enough to go around around the planet. There's enough for everyone. It really is. It just takes our creativity and our ability to collaborate, to cooperate, to get to, yes, radical collaboration to, as we can see, you know, create enormous amounts of wealth and well-being for, for everybody. That's the, that's the only future in which we can survive. Otherwise, uh, we'll find that we're, you know, we come from scarcity, we come from separation, and we'll try to protect our little corner, and we'll find that, no, COVID goes everywhere, climate goes everywhere. There's no place you can escape. There's only, it's like one of these planes. When you get on a plane, the plane doesn't take off until everyone is on board. You could be the first on the plane. Okay, you get on the plane first. But it doesn't take off until everyone's on board, and that's, that's the metaphor for the planet right now. Yeah, that's so true. And the weird thing is really that we have all the resources. We do. It's just that we need to distribute it in a different way, obviously, and share, share what we have. Exactly. 
I mean, when are we going to learn that lesson? You know, you share what you have. William, thinking about uh, transformational points in our in our lives, we've, we've all had them uh, and so on. Are there maybe one or two that you'd like to share with us? I can think of three. Uh, one was, I mentioned, was leaving the United States as a boy of six and moving to Switzerland really opened my eyes to the fact that there are many ways, you know, and, and in Switzerland, I was at a school with children from many different cultures, many different continents, uh, many different religions and cultures. And so it was a, it was an eye opening of like a world of diversity, you know, and um, that was a, a big point for me. And the second was when I discovered the world of negotiation, you know, I was, I wanted to work. My passion was peace. And uh, I was studying anthropology and I wanted to apply anthropology to, to something practical that would actually do something. And I wrote a paper about, you know, what if you were an anthropologist studying the, the Middle East peace negotiation? And I sent it to the professor and the professor called me up at 10 o'clock at night and said, you know, I've taken your, your, that, that, the little table in your paper and I sent it to the assistant secretary of state in the U.S. State Department for the Middle East because I thought he should take a look at it. And I thought, oh, an idea can be useful. You know, an idea that you come up with can be useful. And that was, and that, that got me hooked on the field of negotiation and thinking that innovation, ideas, can actually, if they're operationalized, can actually create value. That was, that was a moment. And then the last moment was, you know, the birth of my daughter. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when you have a child, you, it also, you start to think more about the future and what kind of future you're going to leave for your, for your children or your grandchildren. And, and right now, I can't honestly say that we are leaving our children a very attractive future, so which is why we need to use, again, creativity, creative ideas that are operationalized to create solutions, transformative solutions that provide enough for everyone. And I've seen it happen so many times in my life, both in the, in the political world and in the business world, that I know it's possible. I really do. Uh, we don't have to have lose-lose solutions. We can have win-win-win solutions with that third win being a win for, for the whole. And, and what, would, what would you say are like the really long-term kind of solutions for, for business? that you believe in? When, when I was a graduate student and studying, you know, the game very much and still is for a lot of part is a win-lose game. It's like, I'm going to win and you're going to lose, right? And, and then getting to yes actually popularized the idea that there could be mutual gain, that actually, you know, both sides can benefit because you can expand the pie. You don't have to just divide up a fixed pie. There are ways to grow the pie so there's enough for everyone, right? And now I think we're being invited, especially in the world of business, but in every sector of our lives, to another paradigmatic shift, which is to take into account the larger whole. It could be the larger organization, it could be the larger community, it could be the larger society, it could be the climate, the larger world. But we need to take into account those who surround us. We cannot leave them out anymore out of the equation. And so that requires a different kind of negotiation, 
a different kind of negotiation and a different kind of mindset in which we can create value, not just for you know, our immediate shareholders, but for all the stakeholders. And we can do that. And Bob Chapman, you know, and his company, you know, I, I see he took me, he flew out here once and took me to see his factories and I talked to a lot of people. There are companies that are pioneering the way. And I think we can do it. I know we can do it because I've seen it happen. And if you would assume that you have all kinds of doors and resources open to you, and I, and I bet you, you also have, given your, your network and your experience and background, but if you had all of that, what would you then rush to innovate or, or change now? It's the way in which we collaborate. I think we're being invited to, I don't even have a word for it, but it's a, a kind of radical collaboration. You know, take climate, for example. And energy. We, we realize it's just a huge challenge that affects every sector of society, including business. And business is a big part of it, right? So we know, we now that we're no longer sleepwalking and we're, we can see these extreme weathers, the floods in Germany, you know, the, every, everything that's going on, fires all over the West here, uh, you know, just, I mean, you can see the extreme weather. So the question is, we know what can be done. We have the technology. The economics are already right. I mean, solar and wind are cheaper, much cheaper than, than coal or, 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 or gas at this point. We know that. I mean, like, for example, a new a, a solar power company, plant company in, in Saudi Arabia now can, can produce power for one, one cent per kilowatt. A new coal plant produces power for eight cents a kilowatt. So solar is vastly cheaper. The question is, can we come together and deliver the energy revolution, the great energy transition that's needed in order to be able to avert the worst with climate? We can do it. It's going to take radical collaboration involving business, government, citizens, you know, buying electric, electric vehicles, uh, uh, using solar, using wind, using hydro. It's going to take scientists and engineers and all the creative creativity. It's going to take a new kind of radical collaboration that's using a lot of the methodologies that have been evolved in business of agile work, you know, parallel processing, you know, a lot of things that we are used in Silicon Valley to make things move very fast to go for a global moonshot. The Climate Parliament, for example, which I had the privilege to help found about 20 years ago, just sponsored and was behind an initiative that was just announced in Glasgow a few weeks ago by the Prime Minister of India, with the Prime Minister of Great Britain, with the President of the United States and 90 other countries, called the Green Grids Initiative, which is to create a smart, globally interconnected grid that allows solar and wind to be to be transported anywhere so that it's reliable a reliable most reliable source of energy and that's going to take you know grid operators business utilities lots of things going on it's a global engineering project and it's possible but it's but it's going to take all of us working together that's the that's the long term solution for businesses radical collaboration with all sectors 
for the benefit of all, including obviously the profit of the of, of the company, which is to sustain it. But it, but that's that's the future to me is is a future in which business steps up and assumes its full responsibility as a member of the of the human society and has all its gifts of creativity to 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 release of getting things done of implementing and delivering results. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to John Milton, and he's a professor of ecology and one of the pioneers in this, uh, what we today call environmental movement. And he was reminding me of the fact that we are all very quick to kind of run into this kind of global solutions and everything should be global. You know, everything should be working everywhere kind of thing and scaling up and moving fast and all of those things. And he said, there is a huge power in whatever is local and whatever is regional, like, let's learn. And we know that we could learn a lot more from nature. So how is nature organizing itself uh, in order to, for example, protect itself uh, and so on? Like the system from, let's learn from watersheds, for example, how they work, how they transform and, and uh, transfer, um, you know, um, water to different areas and how contaminated areas are like isolated in a very intelligent way and so on. And we could learn so much more from this local regional perspective. What do you think about that? I resonate with John, who actually is a neighbor of mine as well in a, in another Colorado town. So, Oh, really? Um, wow. Yes. And uh, yes, we can learn a lot from nature. I mean, nature is infinitely creative and the design principles of nature. If, you know, first of all, we have to understand that it's not like humans are here and nature is there. We are nature. You know, <laughs> you know, you know this, we have to shift our mindset. We are nature. And in poisoning nature, we're poisoning ourselves, right? We're just learning that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's this, what's most needed to me is, is the anterior shift in, the, in our perspective and the way we see things. And we can learn a lot from nature because there's so many solutions, natural solutions for things. So there are all kinds of limits that we're encountering, but there's no limit to learning. There's no limit to creativity. There's no limit to innovation. And, and in innovation, you learn, you learn from, you look around you and you see all the ways in which nature has innovated and adapted for millions, hundreds of millions of years. We can, we can learn a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was thinking, um, being the, this super expert in negotiation, I'm imagining that a lot of the leaders who are listening now are thinking, okay, just you know, give me some good advice about how I can negotiate, not like to get what I want, but maybe you know, a lot of people are also telling me that they want to do the good thing uh, for the good agenda of this kind of planet through their companies, but there are a lot of hinders. There is a lot of people who don't understand. There are different levels of awareness. And uh, as you sometimes express it, I've heard somewhere the term of, of like go to the balcony, kind of have this kind of big view perspective of stuff and understand that we are all part of one in a way. Um, but they find it difficult to sometimes communicate, explain and transfer this kind of awareness to others in a, in a, in a good way. So if if we see that as a as a communication or negotiation some uh, you know challenge, what would you tell them? Give them as an advice. Well, uh, I think going to the balcony to me, just starting with that, uh, to me, the foundation of successful negotiation, you know, in business or in the larger world or in the family, 
is the ability to go to the balcony, which is the balcony to simply is just a metaphor. It's like, it's as if life is going on on the stage, right? And part of you goes to a, a mental and emotional balcony, which is overlooking the stage. It's just a metaphor for a place of perspective, of calm, of self-control, a place where you can keep your eyes on the prize and really ask yourself, what do I really want here? What's the prize here? What, what's really called for here? And it's a place where you can see the big picture. So that's, to me, balcony is like job one. Before you can start to build a bridge, in this case, you're asking them to you know, build a bridge with, with audiences or people who, who don't, don't seem to, you know, it's, you know, they're over there. The business leaders are trying to lead them here and they're still a little bit either sleepwalking or stuck in the mud or whatever. How do you get them? So you first go to the balcony, and then that allows you to listen to them and ask yourself, what's going on for them? What do they really want? What's, what's really blocking this situation? So think of some creative ways. To me, what, what the balcony leads you to is the ability to, what I call, build the others a golden bridge. Because it's like our mind is right over here, right? We're here. That's where the visionary leader is here. And maybe the other people are way over here, right? <laughs> and and, and the, the leader is saying, come over to where I am. Come over. This is the, the way that I see. And they don't move, right? So what it requires us to do is something not so easy, is to leave where our mind, where our thinking is for a moment, walk over to where they are, Meet them where they are, start where their thinking is, where their emotions are, where their sleepwalking is. Put yourself in their shoes, see the world the way they see it, and you realize if you sat there, that's probably how you'd be seeing things. And then build them a golden bridge because for them, if, from their point of view, if they're looking at where the leader wants them to go, they see this enormous chasm, like a grand canyon. It's filled with doubt, anxiety. That's going to cost too much. It's going to be too much effort. It's not going to work. I'm not going to succeed. I'm not going to work. You know, <laughs> they have all those doubts. You have to build them a bridge over that chasm, a golden bridge. In other words, make it as easy and as attractive as possible for them to move in the direction you'd like them to move. It's not about pushing them because if you push them, what do people instantly do when you push? They resist, right? It's about attracting them. And so you have to paint them a golden vista of where they're going, and then you have to make it easy for them to get over all the doubts. So to me, one of the best little exercises anyone can do in a, in a tough negotiation like the one you're saying is sit down right now and write out the person you're trying to influence, write out their victory speech. In other words, put yourself in their shoes and imagine that they, that they do what you'd like them to do. They, they move enthusiastically in the direction you want them to move. Write out their victory speech. Who are they going to deliver that victory speech to? It might be their family, the people that they care about, their coworkers, themselves looking in the mirror, and deliver that speech. Write out that speech so that they can say, I decided to do take this giant step that the leader suggested, and this is why it's good for me. You know, Name the two, three benefits. And then answer the hard questions about, Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be able to make it? Is this too much for me? You know, make sure you have some good answers to that because 
They're only going to do what you want them to do if they can imagine themselves delivering that victory speech and answering their tough critics. And that's your job. Your job is to help them deliver that victory speech. That's a good, uh, great piece of, of advice. What is a leader today for you? Well, I mean, in the broadest sense, the leader is that part of all of us because all of us have that innate capacity. Uh, it's not just, you know, for some reserved few. There may be some few, few who actually exhibit it more, but we all have that capacity. It's the capacity to face the situation the way it is, which is the opposite of sleepwalking. You know, it's to wake up, go to the balcony, look at the play, see the situation, whether it's climate or any challenge. Don't make it more than it is. Don't make it worse than it is. Don't make it better than it is. Just see it the way that it is. And then, um, and then to me, it's, it's, it's to take responsibility and to call the collective into collaborating together, we can tackle this. And it, it, you have to convey some sense of possibility, right? The sense that it, it is possible. The leader, as a statement of faith, as a statement of belief, says, this is possible, you know? And, it, you know, you don't have to, like, say it will happen because you don't know in this very environment, thing. But it is possible that we can do it. And the leader takes those steps and acts as if it is possible. So is in that sense, not the kind of optimist, but like possibilist. That's what I like. You know, people ask me, you know, I've been working in these war zones and difficult conflicts for 45 years. So at the end of all these years, am I, am, am I an optimist or a pessimist? And I like to say, well, I don't have a crystal ball. But I... <laughs> do know what's possible. I've seen it happen before. So I'm a possibilist. I believe in human potential. I've seen, I can see the negative possibilities of where we could go. And I can also see the positive possibilities. So let's just choose this path of, of intelligence and wisdom that leads us and courage that leads us down the path towards the positive possibilities of the way the world could be. Uh William, I was thinking about it through all these years and all kinds of negotiations that you've been through. Like, is there one example you want to share that was really uh, surprising you? Uh, you know, you went from one end to the other. You didn't see that coming. I mean, I have ones from the world of politics, but I'm going to take one from the world of business because your audience is business people. This was a, a corporate battle, a big boardroom battle between. Uh, two big business leaders, one from France, one from Brazil, who had been fighting for years over control over Latin America's largest retailer. And it was a battle that the Financial Times called perhaps the biggest boardroom battle in recent history, <laughs> you know, cross-continental boardroom battle. And I was asked by the daughter of the Brazilian uh, business leader, whose name is Emilio, if I could meet with him and see if maybe I could help. And I said, I don't know if I can help. You know, it, was a big, it was all over the newspapers. It was, uh, it was, it was really uh, a bitter battle. And it was supposed to go on for another seven years because that was how long the, <laughs> my friend, my client, was, was going to be the chairman of the board. And every board meeting was just 
pure, like they were fighting with lawyers all over the, you know, the arbitrations, lawsuits. Uh, it was really uh, a major battle royale. And I sat down with Abilio in his home and he had some young children. Uh, his young daughter and son were there. And I said to him, so Abilio, what do you want? What do you want? That's the first question is, you know, what are you looking for? What, what, do, you, what do you want? And like any good businessman, he gave me his six, you know, demands. You know, he wanted the stock at a certain price. You know, he wanted uh, the elimination of the non-compete clause for three years. He wanted the company headquarters, you know, the company sports team. I mean, he had a whole list of like six or seven. And I thought about it for a moment. And I said, Emilio, what do you really want? <laughs> Because you've got everything. You've got your own plane. You've got, a, you've got your billions. You've got everything. You know, what do you really want? You know, I mean, he was, he was 70. He was in the 70s at the time. I said, what do you really want? Which is, for me, in negotiation, is everything that people say they want, that's their position. That's the concrete things we say we want. But what are the interests, the underlying interests behind those positions? What, what are the underlying motivations? What do you really want? And he struggled with that question for a moment. And then he finally said, you know what I want? He said, I want uh, liberdade, which in Portuguese means freedom. I want freedom. I want my freedom. And as soon as I heard that, I knew that's what he really wanted was his freedom. And for him, that really had deep psychological resonance because 20 years earlier as a businessman, he'd been kidnapped by a group of urban guerrillas uh, and held in a coffin really for a week and they thought he, would, he wouldn't survive. So freedom meant everything. I said, okay, so you want freedom. So freedom for what? what? What do you want to do with your freedom? He said, well, I want freedom to spend time with my family, you know, because right now I'm just consumed with this battle. And I want uh, freedom to go out and make big business deals because that's what I love to do. And I thought, okay, I don't know if I can get you everything that you said you wanted, but I think I can maybe help you, you know, get what you really want, which is your freedom. So make a long story short, six weeks later, I flew to Paris and had lunch with the uh, friend of, of Abilio's adversary in this dispute, who was a big French businessman. And, and uh, I sat down with him and he said, so why are you here? And I said, I'm here parce que la vie est trop court, because life is too short. It's too short for these battles that not only these destroying these two men's lives, but their families, 150,000 employees with divided loyalties, the societies themselves, it actually was straining economic relations between France and Brazil. It's like, for what? What are these battles doing? This just, and that's the choice that we face, lose, 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 right? I said, there's got to be a better way. He said, so how would you solve this problem? And I said, well... Because, you know, lawyers have been trying to negotiate for, a, 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 you know, a year and a half and gotten nowhere, teams of lawyers. And I said, well, I think if we could just agree on two principles, maybe we could make some progress. He said, what are those? I said, it's freedom. Both business leaders want freedom. They want their freedom to go on with their lives and dignity. They both want respect. They can't be seen as losing one to the other. It's too public. You know, they want their dignity. He said, oh, that's interesting. And uh, 
And then we had a very nice lunch. And he said, when are you going back to Colorado? I said, tomorrow morning. I said, fine. And uh, then I was walking in the Jardin de, de Tuileries there. And, uh, and I got a call from him and said, could you just stay over one night and come see me in the morning? And I, so I went to see him at his office. And in 45 minutes, we just sketched out what a deal would be that would be based on freedom for each one, dignity for each one. And we sketched it out and, it, you know, and it had to be done so that there was no numbers so that someone could say he won or lost or whatever. It was just really clean and simple. That was a Tuesday. By Friday, we had both leaders in Sao Paulo, Brazil, at a law office, signing a 30-page agreement, wishing each other well. I went with them to see their, uh, the senior execs, and it was over. It was over. And it was a complete surprise to everyone, including me. That, And then I asked my client, I said, how do you feel? He said, Avila, he said, I feel great. I feel like I got everything I wanted. But the most important thing is I've got my life back. And then I asked the French colleague, how does your client feel? He said, he feels very good too. So it went from being a lose-lose-lose situation, lose for each of the protagonists, and a loss for their families and the society and their employees, to being a net benefit for everyone free. And today, that, that was uh, uh, seven years ago, today those two men I had lunch with them in Paris, and they're friends again. So that's the possibility. And that's, to me, a metaphor for the larger world, too, which is we either go down the path of trying to win, beat the other, and everyone ends up losing, or we can find a way where it's a win for each, but as importantly, a win for the whole. That's the key. <laughs> it's a great, great example. Thanks for sharing that. If you would... Um give a piece of advice to yourself like 20 years ago or something. What is that? I would say keep dreaming <laughs> you know, keep, you know, and keep going for your dream. Don't sell yourself or sell your dream short because you'll always hear a lot of people saying you can't do this, it can't be done, whatever, this and that, the other thing. But, but to me, the key is to be audacious And the way in which I've learned to be audacious is it's, it's about being, it's about audacity, having the audacity to think that you can actually, you know, to take on a big challenge, whatever it is, take on that challenge. And what it requires, and this is hard, and this is about going to the balcony, is humility at the same time, because you need equal amounts of audacity and humility, the humility to actually see the situation the way that it is don't you know don't sugarcoat it you know the humility to listen to others so it, it it's humble audacity that's the key is the ability to be audacious and to balance the audacity with hum with humility to know that you don't know everything <laughs> in fact we know very little uh and at the same time it allows you to then to really listen to the other And, uh, and, and not just see yourself as knowing and seeing, being more than the other. But it's audacious having that, the audacity of your goals to go for those big, those big dreams. Beautiful. And, and when I'm thinking about exactly that for each and one of us, but then if you combine that kind of audacity and humility for a bigger group of people that are then cooperating to make it happen. That's it. 
I mean, that's 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 really powerful. That's exactly investment, and that's 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 really to me the challenge that our world faces right now is is we need to go beyond the individual and the individual leader to how do we bring the collective together? How do we bring the organization, but more than the organization, the society, the community? How do we how do we take all these methods and and brilliance and intelligence that's involved in the world of business or in our society, how do we learn to work together? That to me, if we can do that, then there's no challenge that we can't meet. No, no, exactly. And and do that across sectors and because that's where we find the creative solutions. So wow. It's exactly it's across sectors. It's uh, you know it's business with government, with citizens, with civil society. We all have to learn to do that. I've seen it happen before. That's That's what transformed the situation in South Africa. That's what got rid of apartheid. And uh, and I've seen it happen. And that's what we need to deal with climate. It's what we need to deal with social justice. It, it, it's what we need to do to create dignity for all. So uh, and what do you think is the one most important thing for companies to do right now? Go to the balcony. And maybe this is a good way of summing it up. is to go to the balcony which means to pause for a moment. And it's really hard to pause in this very busy world. It's really hard to take a step back for one moment. See the larger picture. See what's going on in the world. See what the play is and look for where can you, as a leader and as a business organization, make your best contribution to creating the world that we all want, that you want for your children and your grandchildren. Great. And, and my final question to you, William, is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? We need to learn to tap into our own individual and collective potential because we have the potential to collaborate radically, to collaborate across sectors, to collaborate inclusively, leaving no one out. So we, what we need is that, that courage, that creativity, to collaborate radically. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, William. So how was it to be on the, on, on the podcast? It was great. I enjoyed it. I really I like your questions, Vesna. I like where you're going. That's, that's what the world needs right now. I can see you're in your element. And I'm delighted to hear about your forum. And I, I hope we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much, William. Thanks for, for sharing. And to find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with people who you know would benefit from hearing William. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thank you so, so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao, ciao, William. Ciao, Vesna. <laughs>